The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine over the long term. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, the coronavirus pandemic continues to take lives and devastate the economy. How do we navigate this new world? We will also discuss the surge in jobless claims and what that means for the economy. And will the massive stimulus bill and drastic Fed actions be enough to stem the damage? That's with our guest, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, Mark Pfeffer. Plus, my interview is with Abe Sheik, Chief Investment Officer at Cougar Global Investments. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, well, the markets rebounded somewhat from the initial plunge in the last few days, um, but there's, of course, still just tons of volatility out there. What are we watching in the markets right now? Okay, so this could actually be the whole podcast with this answer. But first of all, let me just say, welcome to the new bull market. Um, we're actually all more than 20% off the lows. And um, I think the sector that has the strongest technical position is the energy sector. So obviously, when I mention those numbers, it's just sort of the silliness of some of the definitions of bear markets and recessions because we're in a very unique market environment. Um, obviously, we've had a nice recovery here. As the recording of this podcast, we just had our largest three-day gain in 90 years. We've recovered approximately half of the losses, but don't get too excited because uh, obviously, it's part relief rally. Some people call it a dead cat bounce. It's also part quarter-end rebalancing from institutional investors. In short, I think we just have to prepare for a lot more volatility in the weeks ahead. We're going to have bad health data in the United States for three weeks at least, and we're going to have bad economic data in the U.S. for three months at least. And um, But I think the thing to remember is that it's um, it hopefully is short-term and is as sharp as it went down. Uh, once we kind of get past some of the health care issues, the economic data will still be bad. That's a lagging indicator. We should basically set the stage for a recovery moving forward. I made a bunch of comments, but I bet Mark has a few juicy ones to add to it. Yeah, well, let's bring in our guest now. Uh, that's CLS Investments Chief Investment Officer, Mark Pfeffer, who is calling in from New York. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Robin. Uh, well, before you get um, add on to anything that Rusty was saying about the market, uh, New York is, of course, the epicenter of the outbreak in the U.S. right now. And Westchester County, where you are, Mark, has been particularly hard hit. So first, how are you? How's your family? Uh, fortunately, I am well, as well as my entire family who's living under one roof with me. And uh, knock on wood, we're all in good health. Thank you for asking. Sure. So what do you want to add to um, what Rusty has to say about the markets? What are you watching for? Uh, I'm watching the credit markets. Uh, as Rusty did mention, yes, we are now, if you want to call it, in a new bull market that just started just on, on Monday. Uh, and it's certainly nice to see, as, as he mentioned, it's a relief rally. Um, certainly the, the credit markets and the, and the credit flowing from the Fed was an important step. And the improvement and the thawing out of the, of the credit markets to me is a really, really critical step. It really started about a week ago and it has uh, picked up speed. 
uh, as the week has gone on. So that to me is a critical function of the market. And I don't think we can really have a recovery in any meaningful way without having the liquidity that's been provided by the Fed to thaw out, particularly the fixed income markets on the short end, meaning money markets, commercial paper, uh, all of the necessary um, liquidity needs to get monies back and forth to have that plumbing uh, that was clogged up uh, fixed. Right. Uh, Well, the numbers of cases in the U.S. continues to climb rapidly every day. Um, As of Thursday, that's March 25th, the U.S. has the most confirmed cases of any country. And the economic repercussions are beginning to be spelled out. Jobless claims this week surged to 3.3 million. That far exceeds the previous weekly record, which was 695,000 and set in 1982. That's from 50 years of data. So... Um, to either and both of you, what can we determine from the number of unemployment claims that we're seeing about the economic impact? Mark, I'll let you win this first jump off. Take it away. Um, look, I, I think it shows that how quickly um, once companies were forced to, if you want to call it furlough or uh, close businesses, um, the industries that were hit hardest, retail, uh, the travel industry, um, people that the restaurant business, those people, a lot of them are just, you're just not needing those workers. So it's a very, very unfortunate situation. And one, quite frankly, that I think the numbers are going to be understated or that they haven't peaked yet in terms of how many people are going to be laid off as time goes on. So there are still businesses that are trying to make it through as much as they can without laying off people. And, um, I think that those numbers are going to increase. Hopefully. With the Fed's intervention and the fiscal policy and stimulus that's going to be getting, that will be um, achieved and received by businesses and individuals, that that will stem some of those numbers from getting materially worse from where they are right now. But um, what's ironic is when those numbers first came out, the market actually rebounded. That was really interesting to see. So there was even fear out there in the market that the numbers were going to be even worse than the number that was a quadrupling of the worst number we had seen prior to that ever before. So that just shows you right now the psychology of investors and the market right now, that the fear that has been in there, that you get a number of over $3 million of 3 million people that were unemployed and that the market rallied on that number. I would just add that when it comes to the labor data, and I'm not speaking as a citizen, public official, son, father, or all those other responsibilities, but simply as an investor and what this potentially means is that the labor data, first of all, you can break economic data into three basic categories. There are some economic data that tends to be a leading indicator of the economy. Uh, there's some that's called coincident, which is basically kind of trying to capture what's happening right now. And then there's lagging indicators. And uh, labor data is generally a lagging indicator. And so um, if you're a stock market investor and stock markets tend to be a leading indicator because they anticipate the markets are going to turn up well before the labor data labor data improves. So the investors are kind of waiting for an all coast is clear on unemployment rates or initial claims or whatever. That's really not the best indicator. Uh, and just in fact, when you look at Unemployment rates, when they're low, that's typically for the long-term investor, um, you would expect below average returns to the stock market moving forward. And when the unemployment rate is high, you would actually expect above average stock market returns moving forward. Again, it's just a function of the stock market is anticipating it's going to happen and labor data tends to lag it. 
Well, Mark mentioned the stimulus bill. Let's talk more, a little bit more about that. Um, the government is close to passing it. It's It may be signed into law by the time our listeners hear this. It's a $2 trillion measure. That's the largest stimulus in history, pretty much dwarfing the $800 billion stimulus package that was passed in 2008. Um, so let's run through the most significant elements of the bill. First, there's direct payments to millions of Americans. Um, second, a massive increase in unemployment benefits adds $600 per week on top of any state assistance. It also covers gig economy workers and the self-employed for the first time. Um, there are billions in forgivable loans to small businesses who maintain their workforce and $500 billion in assistance to large corporations. So what impact will this infusion of funds have on the economy? And do you think that it's enough to stem the damage? Well, I'll uh, I'll jump in first on this one. Sorry about that. I guess we should have coordinated this in advance. But the um, um, just to put this in context, I mean, the two trillion is is humongous, and obviously it dwarfed two thousand and eight. And first of all, when you compare the current situation to two thousand and eight, obviously in some ways this is scarier because there's there's health concerns, and and obviously our daily lives have been impacted. But in many ways, what I'm going to say is, I've always been uncomfortable saying this, but since Ben Bernanke, the Federal Reserve Chairman, has already stated it this way, in some ways, this is like just a really massive snowstorm that's hit the U.S. in terms of it should have a transitory nature to it. What we had in 2008 was basically the whole economy was really on the ropes of just a major and utter collapse. And so it was just 2008 in many respects was was much worse. And we have a fiscal response, which is much stronger. Now, just to put it into context, too, is that what does $2 trillion really mean? If the U.S. economy, when you look at overall GDP, is just north of $20 trillion, and given the economic attraction that we anticipate, it will probably be below $20 trillion. So Obviously, 2 divided by 20 is approximately 10%, and it'll be 10% plus. And just to put it in more context, uh, federal spending right now is about 20 to 25 percent of the overall economy. So this is a significant increase in terms of fiscal stimulus that is coming into the economy and to the markets. The markets, again, will likely and the economy will likely rebound fairly sharply once they finally stabilize and the health situation gets better. But the fiscal policy and the monetary policy in place isn't going to immediately go away. That's going to be a backdrop, and that will also help amplify sort of the sharpness of sort of the recovery, in my opinion. Mark, now fill in my my blanks. Uh, So just to (laughs) add some my additional comments, uh, I do think that while, as Rusty mentioned, it was a significant step, I do believe it's a first step or the of several steps that will be needed. I don't think this is going to be enough um, to get everyone back on their feet. Uh, it, it feels like that there's going to be, at least if you want to call it, a lockdown on the American economy for at least the next four to six weeks, and that's probably optimistic. Yes, I know Trump wants to see everyone in church on Easter, but I think that that is way too optimistic. And again, I'm just going by listening to everyone else's on TV in terms of when they think that this peak is going to be. As a matter of fact, just an hour ago in New York, Andrew Cuomo didn't think that the peak in New York was going to hit until at least three weeks. And and we had about a 25% increase in deaths just from yesterday till today. So the numbers are getting worse and they're now getting worse and particularly not only just in terms of cases, but now in terms of deaths. So it is increasing at a more rapid pace than it had been where it looked like it was 
even in New York, pretty much under control. And it is now hitting other people in terms of younger, younger people. But in terms of this bill, I don't think it will be enough. It's not going to get to everyone. It's, it's business is going to be shut for a period of time. And while I do think the markets are going to recover quickly, I don't think that industry is going to increase as, as quick, meaning that while we saw how quickly, how quick it was to just turn off the lights, turning on the lights is not exactly the same process. So even if you're in the restaurant business, just you have to go get those workers back. You have to go get food. All of that is not going to take, you know, 30 seconds as opposed to a flick of a switch. So I do think it's a nice first step. It will get people and money in people's hands. We don't know how long it's going to take. They're also going to at least delay payments on people paying their rent for the next three months. That just came out from Intercomo also. So they are taking steps and drastic steps. And I think the steps are going to continue to increase. But I do think this is going to last a little bit longer in terms of than people anticipate. And, you know, the, the question continues to be, you know, more and more that I'm hearing now is, is the cure worse than the disease? And it's something that I think is going to be grappled about now for the next several weeks, the longer that this goes on. And once we hit that peak in terms of cases, then you're going to see more people clamoring to get the economy back on its feet sooner rather than later. I'd like to just add on something that Mark said that was right on. Right on. I totally agree is that the recovery in the market, um, I, we anticipate it'll probably be fairly sharp when it happens, and it'll probably be a lot faster than the economic recovery because it'll just that'll be a longer process. Kind of a good template, I think, to consider in the current epidemic situation is going back to something that was before even Mark our time, even though we've been in the industry for over three decades each, of course, was in the 1950s before our time, the Asian flu. With the parallels to that is that the U.S. stock market was on like a seven-year bull market. It was overvalued, extendable market. Everything was great. And then the Asian flu hit the United States in the summer of 57. Um, the stock market went down. The, the bull market ended. Um, economic contraction late that year. And there was a humongous GDP contraction in the first quarter of 1958. The markets, however, started to recover before that. In 1958, uh, the stock market ended up having a humongous year, up over 40%. And again, it's, it churned before the healthcare numbers. Well, actually, it, the market started to churn when the infection rate started to go down. But uh, the markets obviously started going up substantially before the economy recovered. The market was basically able to recover its losses in fairly short order, but it took the economy um, almost two years really to recover it. Actually, it was just over a year, but basically it had, when the economy did start to recover, it was significantly above average growth. Uh, however, it was just coming out of a deep hole. I think that is the same situation we'll be dealing with here. And also one other comment is kind of, I think it's pretty good to have Mark and I you know, comparing and contrasting notes here. I mean, he's a fixed income guy. That means his glass is half empty all the time. I'm more of an equity <laughs> guy. My glass is half full. He's in New York. He's in the epicenter. I'm in Omaha. So, you know, we got we got different opinions coming here. <laughs> but we're basically agreeing so far. Yeah. <laughs> so far. Well, there is one, one other question. Yes. Go ahead, Robin. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's all right. That, there is one other question that I want to ask you about this, um, and that's on inflation. What impact is pumping $2 trillion into the economy going to have on inflation? Uh, well, Rusty and I will, we may look at this one a little bit differently. First, for now, with no one working, it's going to be deflationary currently. 
Um, so right now with no one spending and, and nothing going on, I mean, even just if I, if I want to go pick up food at a, at a local restaurant, I, people are offering deals. Everything is right now is, is at a discount. So there's no inflation right now to speak of. And we've had even a lot of intellectual conversations internally about where inflation has been heading going into this. But going out of this, I will contest that there's no question you're going to add a minimum of two to three trillion dollars to the deficit. And once you start to recover, both from the economic landscape, as well as the amount of supply that you're going to have to put in to fund these deficits, that has to be inflationary once we recover from this. So I think it's deflationary first. And then I do think you're going to have a spike, which we have not seen in probably a decade in inflation. I don't know when it starts, but I do believe once we start to recover and we don't know what that pace of recovery will be, I do believe it will be inflationary. And the bond market is completely giving the exact opposite side. We had the 10-year Treasury go down to as low as 30 basis points. We had a 30-year bond going down to about 75 basis points. We have doubled off those levels, but they're still very, very low and extremes because that's just really reflecting the fear that's in the market. You're going to be inundated with supply, and then the inflation data is going to eventually turn as the economy starts to recover and once that happens, who's going to want to be owning these long-term securities? And you will have some inflation. And it could be actually rampant for the first time in a long, long time. So I do think you have deflation first and a complete reversal, and you will have inflation for the first time in a long time as we recover out of this. Go ahead, Rusty. Take it away. Jeez, man, I thought this was going to be the first thing we were going to disagree about, too, to that extent. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you know, we agree. I thought we were probably going to disagree on the magnitude and maybe the inflationary bump coming out of this. Without a doubt, we're going to have – we have a humongous demand shock right now, which is incredibly deflationary. But you're right. When we come out of this, we're going to have pent-up demand. It's going to be above average, and we're going to have supply shocks on top of that. And you just add that all up. That just kind of sets the stage for a big inflationary bump. And then there's sort of all the Econ 101 stuff, like you mentioned, too. The federal deficit is going to explode. It tends to have an inflationary impact. Uh, huge federal deficits tend to have um, – suggest a weaker dollar. A weaker dollar would have inflationary impacts. Um, it's, it's just hard to see how we just do not have a big uptick in inflation later this year once everything starts to recover. All right. Well, there's one more question I have about the stimulus, and then we'll move on to the Fed. Um, there are also provisions within the stimulus that directly impact retirement accounts, and I think our listeners might be interested in. So let's outline some of those. I'll give this one Mark, to Mark. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So what people are going to be able to do for the first time in a long time, um, because for many people that have been working at a company for a long period of time, they've been putting money in retirement accounts. And generally speaking, you haven't either had access to it, or if you've had access to it, you've had a you've had you know fairly you know aggressive penalties that have been issued to take it out. So at least for now, you can now take out more than you in terms of having twice as much in, on a yearly basis that you put in. You you have an unlimited amount that you can now get to out of your four hundred one k, and you will not be subject to penalties on that money if you have been you know in a, in a financial distress over the situation. So that's going to help people as well because that is the lock, that is where most people have a, a good chunk of their money is in retirement accounts. So having access to that will help people 
uh, in terms of getting through making you know monthly payments um, for the next several months. More than that, though, and I'm just adding to this, because the government is going to be putting in a lot of these policies in terms of you know delaying payments to whether it's an auto loan or your rent or a mortgage. Those companies and those lenders right now, it's still an open question of what aid those companies are going to be getting while individual investors are going to be allowed to withhold those payments. Those companies need to operate paying rent or all of that. So this, 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 there's a self-feeding loop that could be negative, and somebody's going to get caught holding the bag here. So I am concerned about this the unintended consequence of when a bill like this is rushed through and even the liquidity provided by the Fed won't be enough. But these fiscal policies that have been put in place, particularly this first bill, was really rushed. And there are going to be people left, if you want to call it, quote unquote, holding the bag. So individual investors or in, in individuals, period, might be okay. But companies that are in these businesses are the ones that could actually be at risk. And the, the, that's why other bills are going to get passed and other stimulus is going to get passed as we see who is going to get adversely impacted by everything that they're putting through right now in terms of you know, keeping the investor as well as employees employed and investors whole so that they can make it through to feed their families, stay healthy, uh, all of that. So there's going to be some, some fallout from that. But at least from the retirement account, you have access to retirement accounts that you didn't necessarily have before. So that is at least another access to capital or cash that individual investors will have. All right. Well, let's, let's um, move on to. Oh, go ahead, Rusty. You want to add? Uh, you know what? I I was just going to say I'm going to play the role of Charlie Munger to Mark Zuckerberg and Warren Buffett and just say I have nothing to add. Basically, slam dunked it. <laughs> well. All right. Sounds good. Um, OK, well, let's move on to the steps that the Fed has taken to help the economy. You wrote about this in your um, latest weekly three mark. The Fed has injected yep. an unprecedented amount of liquidity to the market. Um, as you wrote, as of March 23rd, the announcement was that an unlimited amount of liquidity will be provided. Have we ever seen anything like this from the Fed? No, not even in 2008. And interestingly enough, the liquidity that was provided in 2008 was over a several month period of time. In essence, this has been a one or two, three week period that the Federal Reserve has done, and now they're using the term an unlimited amount of liquidity will, will be provided to the market. I think this Federal Reserve has done a fantastic job, despite criticism by Donald Trump regarding Jay Powell. Personally, in the 30 years that I've been investing, I think Jay Powell is not even close to being, he's definitely the best federal chairman that we've had so far in place. And Alan Greenspan was there for a long time. He did a lot of things right. There were certain things he did wrong. But the way that this Fed has handled this under his leadership to me has been unbelievable. They took rates essentially down to zero immediately, meaning in two, in two cuts over two intercut, in, intermediate moves. And even though the equity markets each time didn't like it, okay, the next day after that, when they woke up, they realized what was needed here and that they did the right thing. But buying, you know, they, they tried to just buy treasuries and agencies. They saw that there wasn't enough. Then they saw that there were problems with the commercial paper. They addressed that. Now they're addressing, you know, they saw there was a problem in the ETF space. So they addressed that they're going to buy ETFs. They saw where the bottlenecks were. They saw them quickly and they acted decisively, aggressively, 
and really, really quickly and forcefully. And I think they've done a fantastic job in terms of the amount of liquidity that's been needed. And now they have an unlimited amount of liquidity at their disposal. And just because interest rates are at zero, that doesn't mean they have used up all of their tools in their toolkit. Every single day, they're watching the markets really, really closely to see potentially where bottlenecks could be in, in the financial markets. And they're doing everything they can as quickly as they can to unwind any bottleneck. And it doesn't mean that things will get turned around in a day, and but they have all turned around. So just quickly on even on, on the exchange traded market, the ETFs that we, we deal with, where almost every single fixed income type of security, going from bank loans to emerging market debt to municipals, were all trading at their discounts at NEV because people couldn't, there were four sellers and people couldn't get bids on those markets. They saw what was going on. They stepped in and said, oh, okay, we're going to be a buyer of, 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 of ETFs on, in the corporate bond space. Right away, they, they're addressing a, a liquidity bottleneck that was existing. They started with treasuries. As I said, they hit agencies, then they hit the ETF market. Everywhere that they needed to go, they have gone, and the markets in, in, in fixed income have essentially thought out in two weeks, and we saw a massive, massive rebound, and you've seen a massive, massive increase in confidence in the fixed income market as it's thawing out needed to take place so that we didn't risk on top of an of a an epidemic from a health standpoint that we had a problem similar to the one we had in 2008, which was in addition to that, we'd have a liquidity problem. So they have addressed that quickly. And right now the markets seem to be functioning a lot better. Uh, again, and that plumbing has been really, really fixed in a significant way by the Fed and all the actions that they've taken over the last three weeks. Well, um, so do you think that those those actions are enough by the Fed? Like, what do you think the impact is going to be? Have they done as much as they can do? Uh, well, they'll do as much as they need to do. It's hard to say where we go from here in terms of what bottlenecks will be, you know, that will come up over the next several weeks. Like I said, I think it's very difficult to predict with any certainty what sort of turmoil will lie ahead. I do think that there will be some dislocations in markets, but I do think that the the bulk of the dislocations that we have seen in the fixed income markets, at least for now, have been, I won't say completely eliminated, but they have been alleviated in a major, major way over the last several weeks. And that has been directly attributed to the Fed and the markets are functioning a lot better. I will say this, I do not think that the dislocations that we had in the market two or three weeks ago will reach that level. Could there be some dislocations from here that crop up? Yes. And we also know that bankruptcies are going to increase. So things like the high yield market, could there be some dislocations that occur there? Or the oil and gas companies, as oil is at $21.5, and if it goes lower, could those companies be in jeopardy? Could there be some added need that the Fed has to provide liquidity to to try to salvage those businesses? That's very, very well possible. But I do think the worst in terms of the liquidity um, bottlenecks that existed in the fixed income markets we have seen the worst of that in this economic cycle. Okay. Uh, well, I do want to touch on something that Jackson Lee, who's a quantitative portfolio manager at CLS, wrote um, in the section of the Weekly Three. He had a couple positive data points that might be good to keep in mind as this pandemic unfolds. Mark, what did he remind us of? Uh, well, he let us know um, in terms of what was going on in the United States versus going on in China that. Um, so far, he noted that the differences were, number one, 
the U.S. population density is far lower than China or Italy. That should help to slow the spread of the disease. Italy, he talked about, has an older population, which should help explain why their death rate has been much higher than we've seen in the U.S. And while the U.S. has not taken the extreme measures, although we have taken some of them in terms of locking down cities like China did, and we have seen much more of a lockdown in New York possibly than we have like you have in, in Omaha, we did have more time to prepare for the virus. It's arguable now how much the U.S. did to, compare, to prepare this health system, as we talked about, but that lead time was valuable providing information of how the virus spreads and the best way to treat it. My own, in addition to those comments, and again, I, I am not going to criticize or, or um, give praise to what the president did, but there's no question. Look, my own, I was slow personally in terms of looking at this um, virus, in terms of thinking what the impact was going to be. And, but I am not the president of the United States. And I do think while they were kind of quick to react to this, they could have been even quicker. And um, at least we're going forward. We're taking steps needed right now. And I think at the local level, more than anything else right now, I've seen it here in New York with Andrew Cuomo. We've really, really at the local level taken the necessary steps city by city, county by county, to make sure that those local um, uh, people that we have in government are really taking a, a, a hard look at how it's impacting their own um, entities that they manage in terms of preparing and making sure that we are doing the best that we can to get through this virus as, as quickly and as uh, and then the right way to do it. Yeah, I would agree on the local level. We've been really lucky here in Nebraska that we have um, the University of Nebraska Medical Center, which was one of the first places to treat coronavirus patients, and they've been really influential yeah. in the measures that we've taken. So yeah, on the local level, I think we're doing a pretty good job. Uh, the final section in your weekly three is about the value of financial advisors in stressful markets such as this. Um, what were some of the insights that we talked about there? So what we wrote about there were basically that it, in terms of the stress for financial advisors, it basically comes down to the relationship that the advisor has with his, with his investor and his, you know, the financial advisor relationship. Advisors who have invested in building trust and have gained the confidence of their clients will certainly be much more effective to weather these storms. And studies have shown that the long-term benefits of a strong advisor-client bond relationship is, is really, really paramount. Vanguard uh, did a study on this as well, and they estimate that an, est that an additional 1.5% return can be obtained through effective advisor-client interaction. And then universal law across industries, we looked at a Gallup report that has reported on looking at employee studies who, like their managers, are less likely to do their jobs. Mental health patients will also achieve better outcomes if they establish a rapport with their therapist. So those are the things that we came down to. So the relationship really, in terms of looking at in terms of our business, it's really the advisor to their client relationship. And a strong relationship is paramount to building and their trust is, is, is imperative to uh, gaining the confidence that they have of their client. So what can advisors do now to strengthen their relationships with their clients and help them navigate this time? Well, look, everyone's situation is different. First and foremost, I'd say be empathetic and acknowledge that the paramount, this, you know, this pandemic is scary and it's, it's scary everywhere. And it's, it's normal to be anxious and everyone's situation, it's being impacted by everybody in some shape or form. Everybody knows somebody. If they're not directly impacted, they know somebody uh, that has been impacted by this by this this virus right now. Share your own experiences and, and what your personal impact has been on that. 
and understand how the brain processes information when it's stressed. So we would say fight or flight or, or rea flight, flight reaction that inhibits critical and abstract thought. And in these types of situations, you know, prolonged stress can cause depression. So you got to be careful about the mental aspect that individuals will be going through. Advisors also must understand that the state of mind can make it nearly impossible to imagine a brighter future. But as Rusty and I, I think, have both stated here, we will get through this. The markets will and individuals will. We're a very resilient country and individuals that we know here are very, very resilient. We have been through a lot before. We will get through this. Also, help clients recall that the brighter future they discussed when they first started working together and, and, and remember them, help them remember their goals and let them know that they can still be achieved and share information, which we've, we've been doing, Rusty and I, and as well as the entire team, we've been talking about day-to-day, uh, week-to-week about what has happened past, you know, in, in the past, 2008, Y2K in 2001, that, the, the tech crash, obviously, the, Russ and I have been around for, we were around for the, for the stock market crash of 87. We share that information regarding past recoveries, how long it will take for people to recover. So, yes, it's very difficult. This one is a little different because it's also a health ec epidemic, but there have been health epidemics before. And, again, we have gotten through all of them, and we will get through this one as well. Good note to end on. Well, that's going to do it for this portion of the podcast. Podcast. Hey, Mark, thanks for being on the show today. Stay safe out there. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Next up is Rusty's Q&A. Today, he talks to Abe Sheik, who is the CIO at Cougar Global Investments. Guys, what'd you talk about? Well, it was great to have Abe on. We had a great conversation. And one of the things that, um, well, first of all, the reason why we interviewed him, because we had multiple requests to have somebody from Cougar Global Investments on. They're known to be a manager that can get defensive uh, in certain market environments. So to get his take on the current environment was great. We also got to hear about the process and philosophy of, of Cougar. And I thought it was a great interview. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Welcome. And today's guest on The Weighing Machine is Abe Sheik, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Cougar Global Investments. Abe, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thank you, Rusty. Yeah, it's great. Well, we have so much to talk about. Uh, first of all, uh, the reason why we've asked you to be on this podcast is that we've actually had a multiple requests to have your firm uh, to talk about this current market environment. So I'm glad you're able to find some time today. The, the, the schedules are so busy these days, so we're glad you made some time. Yeah, well, my quite, first I'm question is, here. yeah, awesome. Well, the very first question is just just tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm. Yeah, sure, Rusty. So, uh, as you'd mentioned, my name is Abe. I'm Chief Investment Officer at Cougar Global Investments. Uh, you know, I've been in the business for about two decades now. I, I, I'm an actuary by background, so I like to start off the bat uh, just because, uh, you know, our firm also specializes in sort of downside risk management. And, uh, you know, my, my background as an actuary and as a quant uh, sort of helps in that regard because we focus a lot on uh, on thinking of risk, quantifying risk, and, and you know, this is a great time to talk about that. Um, I spent, as I said, I've spent uh, a fair bit of time in this industry. I spent about uh, 11 years prior to joining uh, Cougar Global. Um, I spent it at uh, J.P. Morgan uh, in New York City. Uh, so I've got a lot of great experience, a lot of great training there. Uh, and I worked sort of in a multi-asset capacity as well. So um, now, of course, our firm is based in uh, Toronto, Canada, but, uh, you know, we kind of uh, are tactical asset allocators uh, and with a focus on downside risk management. 
You know, our firm uh, dates back to 1993. uh, And, and, you know, our goal has always been to take into account sort of the emotional side of investing that a lot of folks miss out on when you talk to, for example, uh, talk about compounding return over the long term. But really, our firm, Cougar Global, uh, takes into account uh, one key principle, which is that, uh, you know, the pain of losing money uh, is more than twice uh, the pleasure you feel from actually making money. So, uh, you know, that's sort of the core tenets of our firm. Uh, and, you know, I've been with the firm for about three years. And, and, you know, this environment is just perfect for us. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about your key team members. Yeah, sure. You know, I work with uh, uh, w- with a great team. You know, we have an investment team and we also have uh, uh, folks who work in uh, marketing and sales and as well as uh, sort of the operational side. Uh, so from our investment team uh, perspective, um, I work with three investment analysts, um, and uh, you know I'll just I'll just call them out uh, right now. They're Irina Dorigan, uh Amy Stasiak, and Jason Ritchie. Uh, they're all CFAs slash uh, CIM slash uh, you know uh, have MBAs and are very qualified. Uh, and so uh, we work together sort of on a on a daily basis to sort of develop our risk models, develop our investment philosophy, uh, think about investment opportunities. Uh, and, and you know it's uh, it's it's a weekly thing. Uh, we we get together really every day, but more formal on a weekly basis uh, to formulate key ideas. And uh, our process is really anchored um, in a probability loss sort of framework. So the team and I sort of huddle together formally every month uh, to think of the downside risk of our portfolios uh, and sort of the probability loss of different asset classes given our sort of outlook. And so uh, we formulate an outlook, and they really help us out. Um, the team really comes together. Uh, to work on that. Great. Well, one question I have is, and I always think it's pretty interesting about how different investment firms that have been around for a while, such as Cougar, how they've kind of changed over the years. And as we all know, our investment industry and investment advice is, our industry is rapidly changing. How has Cougar basically adapted to these changes over time? What changes have happened in the firm? You know, Rusty, that's a that's a fantastic question. You can go back. So we started back in 1993, as I said, and our, our, our founder, uh, his name is Dr. James Breach, and he sort of had this uh, this sort of uh, idea that, uh, that, you know, what people really care about, especially individual investors, what they really care about uh, isn't so much upside volatility. They really care about downside volatility. And so if you go back to 1993, it's a long time ago now, uh, these ideas were really not uh, sort of uh, in the lexicon, they weren't really in the industry as they are now. But but he sort of set up a firm where he said, you know what, uh, I'm going to take your money and I'm going to focus really on not making first and foremost, as Warren Buffett says, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. So he kind of pioneered a firm based on that principle, and the entire models and all frame all the frameworks were built around that. Now, what's interesting about that, the firm started off really uh, not investing directly, but investing through sub advisors. So basically. Uh, delegating, um, if you will, or outsourcing uh, the investment function. Now, what happened to the investment industry is that uh, we had something called exchange-traded funds, which came about. And so what our founder was quick to realize is that ETFs, uh, now they're very popular. When they started, he was very quick to realize their tax advantages, their liquidity advantages. And if you remember, you know, I said uh, Cougar Global started in Toronto. Um, the first ETF actually started in Canada too. So he kind of uh, moved uh, almost all our clients 
uh, into exchange traded funds. Uh, and so that was the first big sort of uh, move that, that sort of defined the trajectory of our firm. Uh, the second thing that happened was this probability loss framework really kind of came into true form during the financial crisis. So, you know, we're going through a pretty, uh, well, we've been through a pretty horrific decline in markets uh, in terms of the fastest, potentially the fastest decline, 30% decline in history. But 2008 was a defining moment for our firm as Cougar Global because, you know, we were one of the first firms, uh, and we can talk about this a little bit more, where uh, we made a wholesale change to move out of stocks basically early uh, in 08. And as you know, history sort of, tells us that 08 was a was a terrible year for investors. And so one of the defining characteristics of Cougar Global was that we didn't lose money in 08 for a lot of our clients. And so that really set us apart and sort of instilled in people, you know what, it's all well and good compounding at 10% a year in stocks over over the long term, if the long term is 90 years. Uh, but you know, you can't handle 50% losses in your portfolio. So that really sort of defined us. And we continue along those lines and we're gaining traction. Uh, again, this is a great moment for us because uh, it sort of uh, defines our value proposition. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> needless to say, your philosophy of managing money is of great interest to many investors these days. And of course, you've been on the Orion Portfolio Solutions platform for a while. In bullet point form, could you talk to, talk to us a little bit about some of your strategies that you have available on Orion Portfolio Solutions? Yeah, sure, Rusty. You know, uh, we have uh, two uh, portfolios available. Uh, they are a conservative option and a what we would call a conservative growth option. Uh, and uh, they basically cater to investors really who are looking uh, to compound returns over the long term, but really with a focus on avoiding losses. So both our portfolios, uh, the first uh, goal is to make sure you don't end up with losses, which are 20 30% in a given year, which could really uh, derail your investment plan. So let me talk about the first of the portfolios, the conservative option. Uh, the conservative portfolio has a probability of loss defined by our risk models, which are forward-looking, uh, of about 5%. So what does that mean? What that means is 5% is basically uh, one in 20 years. Uh, you can expect a loss on that portfolio, which is very low if you think about uh, risk budget-wise. Uh, and it's great right now. So, uh, for example, our, our, our conservative portfolio going into this had about 85% in bonds. Uh, and so really it's weathered uh, this particular horrific period of market uh, losses very well. Uh, our conservative growth portfolio, which is the second option, uh, has a probability of loss of about 10%. So that 10% translates to about one in 10 years. And so if you think about that, again, right now we have about 70% in bonds uh, and we actually have a, a little bit of uh, gold as well, 5% gold. So that's the kind of solutions that are available uh, uh, on your platform. Great. Well, a couple of follow-up questions on those strategies. So in your opinion, uh, which environments will your strategies perform best and worst? And also, how do you recommend investors use your strategies? How should they be blended with other investment strategies? Well, you know, our, our strategies sort of shine during periods of extreme volatility. Uh, so now we look at sort of the last month where I, I think uh, – the market to bounce back a little bit, but uh, sort of the 30% decline in stocks we saw over the last month, that's when our strategies are going to look very different to the mainstream benchmark-oriented strategies. Uh, so that's where it's really going to start to, to shine. And, 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 and on your question on how to use them, you know, I, I have a great answer for this. It was great for us, great from a marketing perspective. Uh, you can use them a little bit or you can use them, use them a lot. And, and, you know, we have clients who have put all their money in our strategies. Uh, so if you think of a high net worth individual, 
who's who says, you know what, I've made my money. I just don't want to lose it. Give me something uh, that's decent. I know yields are really low that they can put the vast majority of their assets with. And we have clients who've been loyal to us for, for many, many years, decades, who have 90, 95% of their net worth with us. On the other side, you know, we are top down macro downside risk managers that are unconstrained. So think of who you could pair that pair us with. You could pair us with a bottom up stock picker. You could pair us with a benchmark oriented strategy that's going to stay the course regardless of whether, you know, the outlook is deteriorating like it is right now, or you could, or, or, or whether there's a really bullish environment like we saw in 2017, where we had a lot of stocks uh, just uh, by the way. So, you know, uh, our tactical strategy pairs well with benchmark strategies, our top down strategy pairs well, pairs well with bottom up strategies, and our avoidance of losses, a downside risk mandate pairs well with aggressive strategies. Uh, so, Rusty, that's a lot, I know, but we, we work well in a lot of circumstances. No, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so you hit on a couple different terms, which I thought was really useful uh, that you mentioned. Um, I have I wrote down four other words here, which I think are words that maybe some investors could attach to your strategies. And I was just curious if you could just, in your own words, how do you define each of these four words I'm going to give you? And just basically, I mean, are these words, are they properly used by investors? So the four words in order are um, alternatives, um, diversifiers, active, and tactical. Um, how, would you, how would you describe, first of all, an alternative investment? You know, a defining alternative investment is something that gives you uh, access to uh, a different source of economic return. So uh, stocks give you access to economic growth, uh, mainstream economic growth, ingenuity, American, Canadian, global, uh, tech ingenuity. Uh, so if it's a diversifier, it has to give you something other than just pure economic growth. Uh, so I'd, 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 that's how I would define an alternative. Right. And then the, uh, and the next word, of course, which I think is, is related, but um, perhaps broader, is, of course, diversifier, diversifying investment strategy. Yeah, I'd say diversifier needs to diversify on the downside. Uh, so what I mean by that is it needs to hold assets, which, refer, which is kind of related to alternatives, which is the investments themselves have to uh, sort of not have an overlap at a fundamental level not just statistical correlation, not just uh, sort of statistical measures, but at a fundamental level, what you're holding needs to be different in terms of economic source of return than your main portfolio. So I'd call that a diversifier. Great. Now, the next one, the next two words, I think, of course, a lot of people use interchangeably. And the words are an active investment approach and then a tactical investment approach. How would you compare and contrast those two terms? Yeah, I'd say, you know, active uh, and tactical are both prone to being misused a lot. Uh, and a lot of people use them as sort of, uh, it, it, it sort of, um, it, it, it sounds great from a marketing perspective. I think, I think in order to be active, um, you need to have a coherent uh, philosophy around how you're going to deviate uh, from what you could just buy sort of in a, in a passively invested vehicle. Uh, and, and, you know, I think, I think you've got to take a sufficiently different perspective from a passive vehicle to actually be characterized as active. That is, you can't be sort of a closet indexer, as they say. Uh, so I think, you know, that's one thing. I think from a tactical perspective, I think this is this is very interesting. Uh, you know, we are, are unconstrained, so we will take large deviations from 
what you would consider benchmark positions. Um, and, and we do that with, in an effort to protect on the downside. So our mandate is very clear. Um, I think a tactical can be misused because oftentimes it's just a, uh, a term used to define small deviations from a more benchmark-oriented strategy, which I think can have its place. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it can have a sort of a risk budgeting connotation. But I do think uh, if you want to be truly active and truly tactical, you have to be willing uh, to provide uh, significant deviation from, uh, from targeted benchmarks and, uh, and, and, and policy uh, statements, if you will. Great. Well, thanks, Abe. So I um, I love doing interviews where I've set the stage for when talking to an investment strategist, really understanding sort of the, the people philosophy and process, because I think that's the most important thing to investors to hear is how they can have a sort of a comfort factor uh, with a strategy uh, through various market conditions. So with that stage all set, I do want to move to the current market environment, which, of course, probably a lot of people on this podcast have been like, when are they going to get to this question? But so right now, what are you and, and, Kluger, and Kluger Global Investment thinking about the current market environment? What what um, gives you concern? What makes you excited? Just what is your assessment of the current environment? Right. So, Rusty, so this, is, this is a great question, great conversation to have right now. And I think uh, what you're going to find is that, that that my view, that our view is different to a consensus, right? So uh, we talk about Warren Buffett, we talk about sort of long-term investing, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a differentiated angle here, um, uh, and maybe some, somewhat controversial. So I, I hope your your listeners, uh, the listeners find it interesting. Um, I think markets are expensive. Uh, now, we've, I know we've come down a fair bit from market highs, uh, but I think from a strategic long-term perspective, I don't think you should be rushing to buy the market right now. Um, and, and so that's just the top line statement, which is that, you know, regardless of whether we're 20 or 30 percent down from all time highs, remember those all time highs uh, were at a point where we had record revenues, record profit margins, uh, record valuations. Right. So uh, you, if you give me a 20 percent haircut or a 25 percent haircut from all time record extreme overvaluation, as I would call it, I, I don't think it's that attractive. Now. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the COVID-19 situation, which is the coronavirus. Uh, first of all, it's a health crisis. And so um, my thoughts and my major concern, as everyone's concerns should be right now, is with making sure that people are healthy and we pass this environment uh, well. What I will say is that uh, regardless of what happens in the short term, I think we're in for some long-term problems here because, uh, you know, we passed a fiscal stimulus of $2 trillion. The Federal Reserve is buying corporate bonds or buying commercial mortgage-backed securities. They're buying all these things. And that's great for the short term. You know what? And I hope markets function and, and, and you know, they've brought some sanity back to the markets. Uh, but let's think a little bit beyond the two, three, three six-month period. Uh, we're going to have a situation where there's been a significant macro shock to the economy in the form of this virus. Uh, we're also in a situation where we have a lot of debt, which we all know federal debt. It was $23 trillion. I don't know what it's going to be by the end of this. Uh, and that's going to hurt us. You know, economic growth, uh, you know, we can inflate our way uh, or print money uh, until it has no consequences, but it will have consequences at some point. Uh, so what I would say is that, you know, hopefully the current health crisis diminishes, we flatten the curve, um, the quarantines work, and we go back to life as normal, and the economy somewhat starts to open up. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't get too excited about uh, throwing a lot of money into this market, because I think they're over some extended period of time, let's say, look over the next couple of years, I think we're going to get lower prices. 
Yeah. That's a, that's a good take. An interesting take, a thought provoking take. Um, I think I'm going to move back towards the more philosophical question, just given you've been in the industry for a couple of decades. And I think that that perspective would be interesting to a lot of the listeners. Um, first of all, and I mean, there's so much uncertainty and volatility, not only in the markets, of course, but even in business models and whatnot. But the first question is, um, in terms of our industry that we're in investment management, investment counseling, what trends do you think are the most important? And do you have a take on anything that might be overrated in your opinion? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, let's talk about some of the major trends which are, uh, which are important. Um, I think uh, risk management is incredibly important. And I think we went through a decade uh, since 09 of a bull market where people sort of became complacent. You know, uh, you know, we talk about stocks and we actually sometimes, you know, Rusty, we call stocks risky investments and we call them risky assets and safe assets. Uh, you know, the reason we call stocks risky is because they can lose a lot of money very quickly. And we found out that like recently, um, over the last month, but for 10 years, people had become very complacent. They had thought that, you know what, stocks only go up. And if you actually go to the start of the year, um, if you recall the conversations then, as you will, as I did, is that, you know, we thought that this was this bull market was going to keep going. There was nothing that could stop it. Now, no one wants bad things, but I think risk management uh, is an incredibly important thing, and it's going to become more important as we go through the next few months and, and, uh, and, uh, and years. Uh, perhaps overrated, I think I'd go back to your point about active and tactical. You know, I'm a quant. I worked uh, in this area and I, I have a, I have a computational master's, uh, finance master's degree from Carnegie Mellon. And so I kind of, this is um, a statement against my own uh, kind, if you will. I, I think a lot of quant strategies are a little overrated. You know, they are overfitted, they're data mined. Uh, I think factor investing, for example, was all the rage for the longest period of time. And, uh, you know, there, there's been a meltdown. You know, a lot of factor strategies have taken uh, a hit and a massive hit. They've completely kind of uh, underperformed what reasonable expectations would be. So uh, those are two things that I think, just to summarize, risk management, I think it's going to be important, stay important. I think uh, some of these uh, quant factor-based strategies are going to uh, dwindle as we go forward. Uh, that was juicy right there. And have a quant from Carnegie Mellon to say that as well. That, that's that's big. <laughs> that was juicy too. Um, cool. So the next question is, in terms of uh, our industry, is um, working with financial advisors. And so obviously you've worked with me over the years. What do you think makes a good financial advisor? I guess another way of saying is, if you were shopping for a financial advisor, what attributes would you be looking at in her or him? So I, I think, uh, great question. And I think if you're looking for a good financial advisor, um, you want to look for first and foremost, I think you want someone who has a good temperament. Um, and I say that uh, recognizing that we are, we are human beings and it's the emotions that make being a human being fantastic, right? The happiness, the joy, the excitement, um, the passion for our work, uh, the social sort of interactions we have, and so so being being uh, our consciousness and, our, and being a, being a human is fantastic. However, there are downsides to being uh, those very emotions. There's depression. There's um, anger. There's um, there, there's uncertainty and 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 so fear. And so what you want in your financial advisor 
is somebody who has uh, navigated uh, some of these cycles, these, these bullish environments, these bearish environments. And, and what they, they have some uh, level of experience, but perhaps even more important than experience is that they have the emotional temperament and the makeup to actually not get too excited when things are going great and not get too depressed when things turn a little south. Because, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And your financial goals and your ultimate investment plan is not going to happen, is not going to be satisfied over the next six months or next uh, sort of uh, three-month period. It's going to take uh, a good number of years. So so look for someone who's um, who has a, a calm demeanor, someone who's thoughtful, someone who's kind, because ultimately people who are thoughtful are ultimately uh, also kind and and generous to their fellow human beings. So I would say those are kind of the traits you look for in a person, but specifically in your financial advisor as well. I think that's really well said. And as you were saying that, it kind of helped me for articulating my own head as well. Because um, you're right. I, I think that there's two big attributes that a good financial advisor has. And sometimes, you know, it's difficult to find them in the same person. So on one hand, it's the, it's, it, there's an investment counselor function. So they have to be good listeners, empathetic, and really sort of emotionally connect with their clients. But, and, and I've known many advisors like that and their clients love them. But when it comes to the markets, they can get pretty emotional sometimes and probably make some decisions that might be rash. And then you have, the other type of counselor who, from an investment standpoint, is very stoic and has those emotions under control, but maybe they could develop their empathy skills. So I think you're, I think it, you hit it. It's like an advisor, a good advisor has to be able to listen and be empathetic, but still have that emotional um, strength to get through these times like we're having right now. That's great. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's another take. So that is sort of for the the listener who's an advisor. But now let's say uh, some of our people listening are not advisors, but they're investors, and they're they're shopping for an investment manager. So obviously they're looking for the good qualities of an investment manager. But it's really a two way transaction. So if you're an investor, what do you think, in your opinion, makes a good investment management client? You know, I think uh, a good client is somebody who uh, understands that this is a uh, investing is not a, uh, a get quick rich scheme. I think, uh, and uh, it's not something that happens overnight. So not too dissimilar to what we just talked about with good financial advice. Uh, but a client is a good client is somebody who um, uh, who doesn't check the stock market every day. That's ideal because that's not a recipe for for, uh, for, for a happy life, nor is it a, ha- a recipe for a successful investment plan. Um, but who who sort of um, understands that um, that the investment business has several components to it, um, and 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 developing a successful investment strategy requires you not only to sort of uh, get the investments right, uh, but also to bear through some pretty volatile times and pretty uncertain times. Uh, and so in that respect, I think uh, a good client um, uh, has, has thought about what their goals are. Uh, a good client is, 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 is not rash, is not looking to sort of uh, make judgments uh, on whether or not the investment manager's performance over a week, for example, over the last couple of weeks, uh, defines their entire investment strategy. 
Uh, and I think they listen, just like you said, Esty. You know, they listen when uh, when there's lesson manager. Who, in our case, you know, we have a team of folks who are working hard every day to try to uh, try to generate great returns for you and try to navigate these markets. And, and sort of has that trust element. You know, is 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 willing to say, you know what, uh, I hired you for a reason. Um, and it's because you're an investment professional. I don't go to my doctor and start second guessing the, the medicines they're giving me, uh, and I, I don't second guess, for example, whoever uh, I may hire uh, to do any kind of professional work. So I, I expect um, my investment manager to uphold a high level of uh, professionalism. Yeah. Well, I think it is important for investors to realize that that every manager, every you know, disciplined investment manager has a style of investing. And there's times that it, it, it looks like it's working and times that it looks like it's not working. But the key is just have that discipline process. And I found working with investors over the decades, it's like really kind of the best investors, the best clients are the ones that kind of went through those periods of relative underperformance because they understood how you invest the money. But they also understand, you know, when and when it works and when it is sort of out of favor. So all good stuff. Well, let's have some fun questions in here. So um, one question I like to ask people is like, so what are you reading these days? Do you have any book recommendations? Yeah, rest of you. So I'm reading a lot. You know, you, you, you're probably reading a lot right now too, because we're going through these, uh, these sort of challenging times where we can't really go out. Uh, you know, I, I think I've been reading a lot of fiction. I like uh, Neil Gaiman. So I've been, I've been sort of reading a few of his books. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the books that I've been reading some books on, uh, artificial intelligence and sort of how we're making, uh, leaps and strides forward in terms of, uh, of moving forward on that front. Um, and so, uh, but you know, I, there's, there's a book that I did want to bring up, which I think, uh, goes back to sort of the fundamentals of communicating. You know, we are, uh, we're all, we're doing this podcast and we talk to each other and we try to. Uh, infer what the other person is saying and meaning that may or may not exist. And and I think, uh, you know, one of the books that uh, Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, recommended on his first day on the job. Now, remember, Microsoft has gone from being, I think it was a three $400 billion company when uh, Satya Nadella took over as CEO, and he it's now a trillion-dollar company or plus. Uh, he recommended this book uh, by Marshall Rosenberg called uh, Nonviolent Communication. And compassionate communication is probably a better way of putting it. Uh, and, you know, I picked it up, I read it, and it is a great book because a, it sort of talks to um, not only uh, us as people, how we interpret the stimulus or the, uh, or the words and actions of others, but how we attribute stories to them. And inevitably, we can go off uh, into our own world and try to attribute meanings that didn't exist, et cetera. So it's a book. It really helps with communication. So if there was one book that I would recommend, it would be Marshall Rosenberg's uh, Nonviolent Communication. Oh, that's a juicy tip. Thank you. That was really good. I um, yeah, I was going to say, I, I really like the suggestion on artificial intelligence. I recently read, well, I have not read the whole thing yet, but the first chapter itself was amazing. It was Life 3.0. I want to say the author was Max Mark or something like that, but it was Life 3.0. And the first chapter was on artificial intelligence. Again, it was it was really mind blowing. And then uh, Neil Gaiman, I uh, just read Norse mythology recently, so um, oh, that was a fun that, that was a fun read too. Well, great. Yeah, you so, know the book yeah. actually. I, yeah. Well, let me just tell you. So it's Nick Bostrom's yeah. Super Intelligence is the book I'm kind of looking at right now and reading. It's it's, it's great because it it talks about how 
we might be able to replicate the human brain in terms of being able to replicate functionality and the exciting possibilities that sort of technology and and, uh, and sort of super intelligence potentially that that may be in the next 50, 100 years. No one really knows, but yeah, it's coming either way. <laughs> Whether coming. it's 50, coming. 100, or 20, exactly. Wave, well, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, a couple of things. So, first of all, do you have any other stories about your firm you'd like to share? Or, and most importantly, how can listeners learn more about your firm? Well, thank you, Rusty. Uh, uh, you know, our firm, uh, you can go to our website at www.cougarglobal.com. Uh, one important thing to remember at our firm is uh, we are an affiliate uh, of Carillon Tower Advisors. Uh, and Carillon Tower Advisors provides us with um, the, the operational marketing uh, and tons of other resources. Uh, and we are one of many uh, affiliates. So, you know, uh, if you are able to, you can also call uh, your dedicated representative from Carillon Tower Advisors and they'll be able to uh, handle any questions that you might have very effectively. And their number uh, is 800-521-1195. That's 800-521-1195. Wave, I definitely appreciate your time. Any closing words? No, you know, I just, Rusty, I want to thank you. I think you, you're, you're, I always love listening to you. You always have a great perspective and it's been an exciting uh, uh, a time getting a chance to sort of catch up with you and talk to you. So thank you very much. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today and be well and we'll talk again later. Thank you very much. Good stuff. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Stay balanced and stay the course and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.